As older adults with vision loss, we understand your fears, your frustrations, and feelings of isolation. The Alliance on Aging and Vision Loss is here to help you as you pursue the independent lifestyle you deserve. For more information, visit www.aaval-blind-seniors.org or call 916-995-3967 for more information. AAVL, a supporter of the ACB Media Network. The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service. Nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. And good morning or afternoon, wherever you are. For me in California, it is morning, January 11th, Tuesday. And this is ACB History Book Discussion Group. My name is Christy Crespin. With me today as our streamer is Larry Gassman. And our host is Brad. I don't remember your last name. Snyder, that's right. Thank you you so much. And so we'll go ahead and have you uh, give the spiel about how to do things, and then we'll get started. Okay, thank you, Christy. Uh, What we like, everybody, stay on mute unless you're talking. Uh, You can mute and unmute yourself as follows. If you're joining us today on a Windows computer, you'll use Alt-A. If you're joining us on a Mac, it's Command-Shift-A. If you're on an iPhone or Android, I believe it's the same. That you'll find the mute button in the lower left corner of the Zoom app screen. Um, if you're joining us on an iPad, the, the mute button is, uh, is towards the top of the screen and just slightly to the right of dead center. And if you're joining us by a call-in phone, you will use star six. All these are toggles. They will mute you and unmute you. Um, If you would like to speak, uh, we ask that you raise hands and we'll take the hands in the order that they're raised. Again, let's see if you're on a Windows computer, computer, that command is Alt-Y. If you're on a Mac, it's Option-Y. If you're on an iPhone or Android, uh, Android, okay, you're on your own on Android, but I don't want an iPhone. It is, there's a more button in the lower right-hand corner of the screen. You tap that, it'll open up a little menu, and you'll find raise hand somewhere in that little menu that opens. And same thing on an iPad, it's just to the right of the mute button at the top of the screen. And if you're on a dial-in phone, it is star nine. And once you're called upon, I'll lower your hand so you don't have to worry about that. So with that, Christy, back to you. All right. Thank you very much. I'm really hoping we get more of us on this call this morning so we can have a good and lively discussion. Um, We are discussing the book, The Unseen Minority, A Social History of Blindness in the United States by Francis, F-R-A-N-C-E-S, middle initial A, last name Kessler. K-O-E-S-T-L-E-R, published by the American Foundation for the Blind, copyright 2004 from Bookshare, and 1976 from Bard. Um, We have been reading through 
uh, chapter 16, which I'd like to discuss prior to getting into, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 14, uh, prior to discussion of 15, 16, and 17. Um, and I will tell you that next week's chapters, we will be discussing our chapter 18 and 19. So if you haven't read the book, get started. We're about... We're about 57% done with the book. Um, so, um, so if people would like to uh, kind of talk about, you know, we, we uh, asked people last week to kind of, if you had some experiences or some, some thoughts to, uh, you know, think about them and, and talk about them this week. So I'm hoping that some people in ACB media land will go and get on this discussion. Um, just look for the heading that says ACB history book discussion group and come on aboard. So um, do we have any hands raised? Not at this time. Okay, well, um, let me yes, just... I got a hand popped up. Okay, go ahead. Livy? I think it's, is it Lydia, I believe? Yep, Livy. You should be able to go ahead and unmute yourself. Yeah, I'm here. Oh, there good. Go. Thanks. Good morning, since you're from California. <laughs> Livy, did you raise your hand to talk? I just did, but I just wanted to let you know I was here. Oh, no, don't do for that. I saw your name already. Oh, you, okay. What was your, what was well, your question? We're, we're asking about um, just thoughts, comments, ideas, concerns, things that came up from last week's reading, um, not including this week, but just up through chapter uh, 14, which was talking about the workshops, um, chapter 13 was the showcase of the blind, chapter 12 was a share in the general welfare, No comments? Um, does anyone have any experience working with people who were involved um, or were you involved in the workshops or um, do you know about people who were involved in the workshops and uh, some of the workshop kind of things that changed? Um, 
As I was mentioning last week, I remember California Industries for the Blind when I was even I'm just trying to picture myself talking outside one of my houses. I don't remember which one it was to somebody uh, where they were selling uh, the brooms from the California Industries for the Blind. Uh, does anybody have anything to say about that? If not, very raised to say him. Okay. The only then. thing that I have to say is that when I was growing up, um, the um, workshops, which I think if you're referring to sheltered workshops, were looked down upon by a lot of blind people as something you never wanted to get into at all. I mean, for some people, that's all they had. But if you were looking for a job, if you were planning on looking for a job, even if you were too young, the goal was not to get into a sheltered workshop, but to do anything else you could to work towards making money so that you could be independent. It was always a negative. Yes, it was always a negative. Very much and so. It's, and it's really too bad because yeah. I know when I was a vocational rehabilitation counselor, there were so many clients that I had that could have really benefited from uh, you know, the workshop kind of situation. Um, I believe that job coaches should be a matter of course for people who are visually impaired um, or blind. And the reason I say that, and, and they weren't used in this way, they were more used for people who uh, were involved with the the uh, regional center uh, people with uh, with uh, some mild intellectual disorders, um, cognitive problems. But the the reason I think that job coaches should have been used and could have been used, and these kinds of workshop situations could have been used better, is that. Um, teaching someone to do a job um, ended up to be a task of coworkers who um, resented people being there um, and supervisors who didn't want to supervise someone with a disability in the first place a lot of times. And I saw um, some of my friends go through situations where they uh, lost their jobs because of this, because of not knowing their job, the frustration of old equipment, <coughs> excuse me, the frustration of old equipment, the frustration of the supervisor not understanding what was going on. And I am going to get a drink of water. Is there anyone with hands raised? No, not at this time. Come on, guys. Don't make me talk. <clears throat> talk to me. <laughs> we actually have so few people here right now. I think we're at I six. We yeah. could, if we were all we good and nice, we could actually hand. unmute. Yeah. If you want us to. I mean, that way, at least we can, as long as we don't talk over each other, you got six people that might be easier for you. Yeah. Well, we might try. Oh, okay. 
Beth has Hi, raised Beth. your hand. Um, yeah, I had trouble logging in. I don't know why. Oh, I'm glad you're this here. Phone, this phone does strange stuff. Um, now, you were talking about the workshops. Yeah. I I did like working in a workshop. I, I liked it better than I liked competitive employment. I swear, when I was in competitive employment, I was I was to the point I was going to get me some brass knuckles or something. Do you think that had you had a job coach teaching you uh, the job um, in competitive employment? Do you think that would have um, benefited you? Maybe, uh, yeah, but I I didn't like. Even in public school, I hated being the only blind kid there. Mm-hmm. I felt like a bloody space alien or something like that. Yeah. I didn't like it. Uh-huh. I mean, I hung around in school. I hung around with kids um, that weren't, they weren't cognitive, cognitively disabled, but they had disabilities in other, in other ways. Um, we had our own table and stuff like that where we sat at lunch and stuff like that and and um and it was like the other kids of my grade really didn't care you know and uh, and we didn't really care about them either you know <laughs> i mean uh, i shouldn't say we didn't care but um, you, you know just, you just felt really kind I, of different mhm yeah, mind over matter. If you don't mind, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Thank you. And Beth. um, uh-huh. but I think a job coach might have uh, helped in competitive employment. Now, I liked uh, the competitive job that I did have. Uh, one of them that I did like was in Catholic, with Catholic charities, and it was teaching the. English to Spanish-speaking immigrants because uh, my uh, kid's father was a, a Spanish speaker, and uh, and that's something I knew that I could do well because I I interpreted for my grandma when I was mm-hmm. a kid. I used to go along with her to the doctors and stuff like that. So, yeah, um, I I think a job coach possibly could have helped in with competitive employment but as far as the uh, the workshops I, I did like it as long as you knew your job we had a guy and he was from Texas and he was he was very laid back down to earth you know and and he was a guy that our supervisor and uh, he told you what your machine was supposed to do and and he trained you on it and then he says, "Okay, now you're now you're doing pretty good. Now you can go on to to production, you know." And and uh, and he was real, very laid back with us and and um, stuff like that. Uh, but had I had a uh, supervisor that resented you, yeah, yeah, that's uh, what I was talking oh. about because um, I I know that. Uh, I know several people who had jobs that the supervisor did not want them there. Um, they once they got onto the job, they were told, 
you were trained, you know what to do. Now just do it. And, um, you know, I, I know people uh, who were involved um, in uh, telephone, um, um, customer service, um, in um, even some kind of machinery kind of things. And um, there was a big disconnect between the, the coworkers and the supervisor and the the new kid on the block. Um, yes, that's what I noticed. Uh, I was involved in um, in uh, tel- uh, telephone um, customer service, and that's one thing I noticed. They didn't really want. That was before computers came out, and they didn't really want to read the scripted stuff to you, and they didn't really want to tell you, you know. Um, kind of who you were supposed to call and stuff. There was a big resentment. And that's why I said I was about to get me some brass knuckles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Beth. Nellie has Thank her you. hand Nellie? Yes, I had um, an ex- um, some experiences um, in the early 70s where um, I was able to get a job um, with um, with local hospitals in Riverside as a medical transcriptionist, but um, very difficult to keep the job. Yeah. Uh, my my first one, um, I I was hired, um, you know, based on my ability to to type and and know uh, medical transcription, but I had absolutely no support. Um, and, um, the supervisor was pretty, um, understanding, but the hospital administrator, um, had issues with my guide dog and, um, um, very quickly it, uh, deteriorated from the fact of, um, coming in the usual entrance where all other employees come in to that the only entrance I could come in was the uh, back entrance and and, um, that I was not allowed to bring my guide dog into the cafeteria. And then um, uh, it just got worse from there. And um, um, there were no laws at the time uh, to uh, stop this, uh, you know, taking away my employee rights. So even though um, I liked working there and I had a good supervisor and who tried to intervene on my behalf, but this was the hospital administrator. So um, she didn't have much power. So basically I only worked there about two weeks and I quit. And um, I went- How did you feel? How did that, how did you feel? I know you remember how you felt. I was angry because I knew that that could have been um, a good job for me. And I felt very angry and very powerless. Mm -hmm. And I went and uh, I got hired by, that was Parkview Community Hospital. And then Mm -hmm. I uh, went, not Parkview, rather, I'm sorry. That was um, the osteopathic 
hospital. Um, I forget the name of it, but it wasn't that wasn't Parkview. Um, and I went to Riverside Community Hospital and immediately got hired. And um, so I felt much better. But then what happened was that, you know, of course, they had a lot more uh, material that I needed to learn. Because at the osteopathic hospital, I mainly, you know, was typing up um, x-rays and, and osteopathic reports. But um, at Riverside Community, it was everything. And I hadn't had adequate training in all the terminology. And so they assigned one of my co-workers to train me. And uh, I could tell right away you know, even though she was knowledgeable and experienced because of the fact that I worked quickly and I produced a lot of work, it was a lot of work for her to uh, uh, proofread. And um, she started to complain, which I understood, and, and I felt um, awkward. And then my rehab counselor provided me with a CCTV because I had um, partial vision, and I was able to um, proofread a lot of my own work, which took a lot of pressure off of her. But there was another employee who worked the uh, graveyard shift who didn't like that, that I had been hired. And, and she was uh, very um, um, passive-aggressive and would uh, cause, um, try to cause trouble for me with my um, supervisor without, you know, directly dealing with me. And so, um, so there was this kind of stuff going on. And having had a job coach uh, would have eliminated the problems with the other employees. Well, maybe not with the person on the graveyard shift because she was just, uh, you know, a bitter, angry person. But I think overall it, it would have been a big improvement. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyone else with hands raised? Thank you, Nellie. Oh, we have no hands right now. Mariana Noriega raised her hand. Deanna? Yeah. Deanna? Okay. Um, I entered the workforce at age 14, actually, because I was um, the oldest in, in a family of five, and my parents um, had not finished high school, so finances were always a problem. So all of us kids were expected to do something to help. So being raised in the environment I was raised in, my mother treated me from the time I was quite small as if my vision was not an issue, but she did take the time to teach me things, um, even the things that she didn't know how to do, like she'd never learned to swim. But when we lived in a trailer park that had a pool, she didn't want me to drown. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, she um, tried to teach me what she observed. And when the other kids were roller skating, my brothers and stuff, she... Um, went with to the roller rink with me and we laughed and fell down a lot together. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know um, so 
I had a support system as a child. So when I was 14 and was trying to think of how I could help my family, I was very good at ironing. And a lot of the, the women in the mobile home park worked also because when you can only afford to, you know, to live in a place like that, both parents often have to work to make ends meet. Mm -hmm. So I offered to iron for all of the neighbors and I ironed for 10 cents a piece. And I spent all of my Saturdays at an ironing board because my mother taught me to iron. And I thought it was really unfair that many of the tasks that women do were <laughs> very underpaid. Right. My brothers might get five mowing a patch of lawn that took them 15 minutes. Get five bucks. Yeah. And I would get 50 cents an hour for watching their children. And I used to think to myself, well, what's more important, your grass or your kids? Really? <laughs> you know, so that was the first thing I noticed that was different, but it didn't have anything to do with my blindness. It had to do with the, you know, the status of women and being poor. And so when I finally did enter the actual workforce, my first job in college, I was recruited by my Boke rehab counselor because I was living independently in, in, in a mini, you know, studio apartment. And he could see that I was coping quite well. And I was, my grades were good in school. Things, you know, from his perspective looked good. So he hired me at the same rate that my um, readers were hired. And I used the same forms to fill out, but he had me teaching independent skills to people who were recently blinded in the county because they needed one-on-one -on -one instruction. And they didn't have, they had to send someone down from Sacramento, um, down the San Joaquin Valley where um, mm -hmm. I was. And they could only send someone once a month. And that wasn't enough for somebody that was dealing with recent blindness or one young girl I worked with, her mother had recently died and her father worked and she needed to know her way around the house a little bit better and, you know, how to do simple cooking and that kind of stuff. So, um, I, that was my, my first actual, you know, that it wasn't something I went out and found. And then when I graduated for the first time, I hit that wall uh -huh. because up until then, the people around me wanted me to be successful. You know, my family did, my uh, instructors in English did, my school teachers did. Um, there wasn't, um, and for the first time in my life, I walked into an environment where there was resentment at my presence. Mm -hmm. And um, there was no accommodations of any kind and nobody mm -hmm. I could ask. Right. How does that feel, Deanna? Pretty stubborn. And I've always been a person who thinks outside the box. So I did a lot of problem solving, but it was a struggle in that anything I did. Oh, for example, I used to ask the unit clerk questions about my files and things because they were all printed. And at that time, we didn't have an access to print. Mm -hmm. um, that was in 1972, I think, 72, 73, that I was working there. And I was hired on a 
temporary basis because they were extremely shorthanded. And I was put in a unit that the reason I was hired was bizarre to begin with. (laughs) I walked in and asked if they had any entry-level social work positions. And she said, no, we're on a hiring freeze. The governor has frozen all, all hiring. And I was feeling impatient and flippant at the time. So I turned around to walk out with my guide dog. And I said, I guess you've got your token Indian. (laughs) And she said, no, wait a minute. And she immediately helped me fill out my form. And she made it from what I've been told into a paper airplane and flew it onto my supervisor's desk and said, here, (laughs) here's your Indian. Because they were um, trying an experiment with specialized units um, for for Xanic. They had very good success with a Hispanic-speaking unit. They had pretty good success with, um, you know, putting together a unit that would handle a particular population. And my unit handled everything from foster care to um, indigent seniors if they were Native American because they were having a hard time with the culture gap between the two populations because the federal government was in the process of running a, a dispersal project where they would pay people to leave reservations if oh. they would move to the city, mm-hmm. any city. So they would take Navajos and I was in the Bay Area and dumped them in the Bay Area. Well, these are people that depended upon um, family structure, um, networking, friendship, because maybe you only would have one person that you knew that had a working car. (laughs) So that was the person that took everybody to the doctor or into town to apply for some government service or other. Or... You might have um, a younger person in your family who spoke good English. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that person was the family translator. Right. And so when you dump people that are used to networking in that way into a city environment, you may give them enough money to rent an apartment, start their utilities, but they've never lived in a city and they don't know other people. And they're wary of people that are not them because, you know, uh, so I think I was successful because I have a lot of empathy and I have a lot of patience. Um, My immediate supervisor was um, resentful because I was the only other one in the department that had a college degree. The other two were um, lower status because they couldn't do a lot of the things that you had to have a social work. They were um, junior college grads. Mm -hmm. So so, um, one was a Sioux and one was a Lumbee. And the Sioux disliked the Lumbee because the Lumbee is a tribe that is a a tribe made of many people. Um, It was created at a time when there was a lot of pressure to gather up all the Cherokee and move them out. And so Cherokee and the Seminole is another tribe like that, that their Seminole means the runaways. Oh. And so that's what 
she was dealing with because the Lumbees had a lot of African-American blood as well. And, you know, it was just a very hostile work environment. And I only lasted until my codes ran out because my paycheck went all over the building, depending upon who was out on. And because I got no support, I started cutting corners. We had to fill out a form for every single thing that we did. But if I was dealing with someone who was evicted and um, had five children, and, you know, it took me a while to set up some kind of a system so that the landlord got the rent first before they were issued their welfare check, Mm -hmm. that would be a guarantee that they would not get in arrears. And if I was trying to solve other problems with the family, like, you know, appliances, furniture, household goods, you know, it, it took a lot of work, but I would only fill out the form that was successful, uh, not the 10 I other see. calls I had mm-hmm. to make. Mm-hmm. And so you- it looked like my product, my productivity was low. Low, right. Do you think that having a job coach would have helped you on that position? I'm not sure because the technology wasn't there at that time. Everything we did was put into a computer, Mm -hmm. but what they turned in was forms with the, the spaces filled out in red ink in handwriting. And then it was entered in by us another person right. so what, how did how did you turn in your forms uh, i worked out with the help of the unit clerk how many lines down how many spaces over and i wrote out braille templates that i kept on this top of the forms and when i would go to recreation uh, requisition new forms i would ask um mimi the the unit clerk okay which side is up and, you know, mm-hmm. and which is the top of the page. And then I'd always put them in my drawer in a specific way mm-hmm. with, the, with the Braille card attached to the top form so that I would be able to, to do that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, roll my typewriter four spaces down and type, you know, 16 spaces over to hit the place where the date went, which is uh, very cumbersome. Yes. And of course, I had my my typewriter ribbon changed to the red setting, you know, because uh-huh. you have the the white, the the black, and the red. Right. So that's how I did it. But it was like pushing that rock up, <laughs> up yeah, slope. Yeah. yeah, because nobody wanted me to be successful there. Mm-hmm. My, my the people I had, the, and I had a caseload of a hundred, mm-hmm. which is. Yeah much too much to do quarterly visits and have contact with the people. Plus I'm dealing with the people that are afraid of the government and authority so that when I would mail a letter to someone who didn't have a phone to let her know I was going to be coming to her home at a certain time on a certain date in the next week. They'd be gone. (laughs) No, I'd show up, knock on the door and, you know, the person they would open it and I'd say, Hi, you are you Dolores Yellow Horse? I'm your caseworker. And she'd look at me and she'd say, Oh, I didn't know you were coming. And I'd say, I sent you a letter last week. And she said, 
I saw it was from the government, and I was having a downer day, so I didn't open it. You know, <laughs> you know. But mm-hmm. once they saw me, and they saw that I cared, my my clients loved me. But I had to right. be really careful because they got too dependent on me. Right. Right. So it was a very tough position to be in, and I really felt emotionally wrung out by the time my code disappeared. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I was glad not to have a job because I felt like <laughs> I felt yeah. like a Girl Scout with a Band-Aid trying to handle accident victims on the side of the road, you know, because what I could right. do for them was so small right, compared to what they needed. Right. Well, thank you so much. Um, I'd like to, since we're about, you know, over halfway through, I'd like to start discussing uh, chapter 15, the Magna Carta of the Blind. Chapter 16, the world, the war blinded World War One. And chapter 17, the new breed. So who has some... um, who has some comment about, first of all, hopefully some of you got to read these chapters and what, um, what would you like to comment on regarding these chapters um, in this book? I was quite surprised when I read the Magna Carta of the Blind. Does anybody know what the Magna Carta of the Blind is? Um, this is Nellie. Uh-huh. Nellie. And uh, so in 1943, the um, um, act that was passed that totally revamped um, rehabilitation services. Yes, ma'am. So that was a wonderful was, thing. Yeah. Um, La Follette and... Um, Bard. I think his name is Bard. Bard. I don't remember. Barton? <laughs> Barton. 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 Yeah. Barton La Follette Act. <clears throat> that totally um, changed uh, what could be done because everything prior was compartmentalized into um, uh, small agencies and uh, very limited services. And this really expanded the scope of what could be done. And part of the problem was that back at the end of World War I, um, there were only a few hundred uh, war blind. And uh, so basically services were provided. And then once each of those individuals was um, restored to um, functioning independently, um, the services didn't really continue. It just uh, folded, basically. And so, um, you know, they were starting again, you know, in, you know, with uh, World War II. And uh, so, you know, basically reinventing the wheel. So that just goes to show the inefficiency of, of what our government was dealing with in spite of all of the efforts made by by many 
um, blind individuals who were very capable and were advocating fiercely uh, for blind people and for services. But it did not uh, happen really to any significance until 1943. Right. In fact, they, um, they thought the blind population was uh, so helpless and so severe that they couldn't even imagine um, giving them a job. Mm -hmm. I think it's Thank still you. that way. Thank you. Um, Livy, you have your hand raised? Yeah. yeah. Lydia? Uh-huh. Yeah, is it Lydia? Go ahead. Livy. Yeah. Um, one thing I noticed, too, from like 43 to 48, there was this ping pong effect of, comp you know, going back and forth and back and forth. And, you know, uh, rehab was going to do this or then we had to do this. And it was just a hodgepodge, really. And it was there was no um, ouch. There was no real structure. Yeah. And I thought that was really strange. And um, uh, the one the one uh, person that I really thought was just pretty good was uh, Kathy Gruber. Yes. She was a firecracker. Yep. And if it wasn't for her, a lot of the things like particularly mobility instruction and things like that would have never uh, evolved or occurred at all. Yes. She and, got outside the box. Yes, she did. Mm -hmm. And um, her and um, oh, who was the other guy? I can't remember his name. Uh, anyway, they, you know, she and some of her people were the ones that really got so many of the things that we take for granted now and that we use uh, you know, happened. The other thing I thought that was interesting was in chapter 16 and 17, the competition between the three schools, whether if it was that um, Greenleaf uh -huh. school and the, um, oh, I can't think of the names. Um, the one where they had, uh, they didn't, they didn't, Want him to use a cane? Yeah. I oh, I know. I can't either. Yeah. Um, but the, the I, school, I, I just couldn't get over that. I thought, the oh, my was, word. That's the an school, accident waiting to happen. Right. The school was was uh, like this, was built like this old English style um, um, training mess. Center. Yeah. And they said that if a blind person could... Um, deal with this environment they could deal with anything yeah they did they did allow them to use canes and i'm using the term allow them to use canes when they were outside the facility yeah which doesn't give you the practice and and the problem solving <laughs> you need yeah. um i yeah. think that that's the you know that there was a lot of strange things going on and I think that was the the main reason we needed to have blindness run organizations because you can't you can't walk 
well, you you can't just talk the talk. You've got to walk it. Talk the, right. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I I thought was interesting is that prior to 1943, if there was a person who lost a leg, they had to find a job that a person could do with one leg, etc. And in the 1943 Act, they began uh, giving funds for um, for like for instance a prosthetic a prosthetic leg or um you know to to get the person physically uh as good as that person could get um which yeah. has been a godsend for people especially people who are visually impaired who have needed um lenses and uh, you know i mean when i was a rehab counselor i even authorized cataract service surgeries for some of my clients yeah but the um the system isn't set up for it even now christy because we're still fighting an acb to get um durable medical equipment with lenses right but i'm talking about the department of rehabilitation yeah is able to pay for some of these things but yeah Yeah. it's crazy it is in that in other countries in the world, yeah. um, those things are covered under their their rehabilitation and under their services things through their medical programs. Um, I have a friend who lives in Finland, and there they'll come in and analyze the lighting in your home and make sure it's suitable if you have any vision, that it's the right kind of lighting for your particular vision problem. The, the subways have a, a color strip along the edge so that people with depth reception issues right. can see that those are stairs. Um, and all of this is just taken for granted. Whereas here, we have to fight for every single little yes. thing that would make our life easier. Um, and there's still controversy among our own about audible traffic signals for god's mm-hmm. sakes <laughs> yes yes mm. for sure um so does anybody else have any comments about um uh chapter 15 No, I, I do think it was important. I did read the entire book, but it's been a, over a month ago, I think. <laughs> so Beth I get the chapters up. mixed up. Go ahead. I'm sorry, we have hands Beth, raised. Beth has her hand up. Go ahead, Beth. Um, I did agree with, I do agree with Diana, with Deanna in um, everything she said as far as the, um, I think that's how I felt getting back to uh that's how i felt in my in my um competitive jobs too that there was resentment there and um i know my mother too when she worked for the for the bia she she uh or the for the indian health service excuse me she um they 
you know, people were kind of scared to talk to her and stuff like that until, until they realized that she did care. And I felt that way with my Hispanic uh, people. They, they didn't know if I was going to report them to, you know, whoever, or mm-hmm. and they were scared of the government as well. But when they realized you cared, they would like you more, but, or, um, or love you more anyway, but, uh, uh, then it came to where, well, you know, Catholic Charities is not a federal organization. There wasn't a lot of funding for stuff. Yeah. Yes, and I so- would try and do the same thing, too, that, you know, try and help them not get evicted and help mm-hmm. them not um, get their stuff turned off. And uh, I think people resented that, too. Which that, you people? Know, part, huh? What do you mean people resented? Oh, why why are you really trying to help them? They're they're illegal or they're they're not oh. even from here, you know. Like your I'm coworkers? Like, yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I got that too on my last job where mm-hmm. I was an independent living specialist at an independent living center. And you'd think that an independent living center where 51% of the staff have to have a disability, there'd be more supports. But there weren't, um, not for me at, at least. Um, yeah. I think they understood mobility impairment mm-hmm. and the things like that, but because they could just take the desk chair out and you could roll your wheelchair up and do everything the same way everyone else did. Right. And so they were constantly changing the operating system, the database, the, you know, everything in the office would go through these changes. I went on vacation <laughs> and the, the computer that I had that had been supplied by Voc Rehab, you know, set up with JAWS and everything, um, was taken away and a new computer was put on my desk. And I had to spend weeks getting the the right version of I had to update everything else so that everything would synchronize my translation program, Mm -hmm. my embosser, you know, all the other pieces of equipment, my scanner that all had to work together and learn the updated versions. So my predictions productivity again was low even though i had support from voc rehab to make sure i got what i needed they're overstretched so i wasn't getting the um the support as far as training i mean they buy me equipment but there was no one to help me learn to use it (laughs) right yeah so yeah it's Mm -hmm. it's still a big struggle um to hold a job yes it is Yes, um, that's kind of what I got with my uh, with my Catholic charities job too. If I put stuff in the in the computers, that um, if you would get a new computer, there was nobody to train you to help you use it. And they would say, "Well, why don't you call a commission for the blind?" And I'm like, "Well, you know, they don't help with they don't help with stuff like that, right? Why not? They're supposed to be for the blind." <laughs> And and even today, I still get that, like like helping find a better apartment and stuff. Can't the blind school help you? And I'm like, 
you this know is what they do. Yeah, the they're always, <laughs> yeah, they're always asking anytime. Well, isn't there a blind society or something? Yeah. Or don't you yeah. have someone sighted that can look at right. it for you? <laughs> right. Which, yeah. Of course, you know, and you do that do that, but then you've got co-workers who are going, another stupid question. <laughs> right. Yeah. And um, um you know, um, I, I do so I do I'd tell like them there is a big disconnect. Yeah. Right. I'd like to kind of move on a little bit. So to talk okay. about chapter 15, 16 a bit. Mm -hmm. the war blinded um you know there was a big um a big um difficulty in how america dealt with its veterans and they um uh, the va has come a long way and yeah. i found it very interesting to read about the different types of facilities and how um the veterans uh, were treated, um, how some of them were uh, placed in a hospital situation, um, that they were not um, treated um, adequately or appropriately, that they were still uh, considered enlisted. And so as long as they were enlisted, they were treated as patients. And um, so the whole uh, transactions that took place and changes that took place um we have um 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 Heinz and Hoover who were instrumental in making some big changes and mobility uh contributions and those contributions of the ophthalmologists um were instrumental in how we dealt with, um, you know, treated as civilians because the techniques that they used, um, the canes that they used, um, everything finally um, after big um, <laughs> discussions, arguments, uh, frustrations, no, civilians finally got to be um, included. So does anybody have anything to say about chapter 16, maybe that hasn't spoken yet? No hands right now. <clears throat> Come on, guys. Don't make me be the only one talking here. <laughs> I was trying I, to be good and not talk. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, Me too. Just you need to raise your hands, please. Yeah. Sure. Well, Christy. Olivia's um, got her hand up. The one thing I thought was really interesting was they'd have all this problem with the veterans, you know, because of World War II and this, that, and the other. And even Roosevelt, who was uh, disabled himself finally, you know, took the bull by the horns and said, hey, you know, we got to do this. These people need help, blah, 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 whatever it was. And they went on, you know, they started with trying to get these um, training centers done and or, you know, yeah. figure out. And of course, my first when I heard training centers, I didn't know, like one of them, I mean, I heard the Carroll Center uh -huh. and I, I 
you know, I'd know of that because of people that I know that are ACB that have worked there and this, that, and the other. And the other one, of course, was Palo Alto. And I knew of Palo Alto because I've had friends that I know that have been there. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so in that regard, that was really good. And to go on to chapter 17, uh, thank God that some of these guys got together and started to uh, form the, v, the BVA because yes. they were the ones that really started to kick tail. Yep, and, they sure did. Get things done. They sure did. And, um, and they're a very powerful group today. So, um, yeah, they, I, I was reading the beginning of uh, chapter 17, how it talked about how the word snafu came up. Yes. <laughs> Situation all fouled up. Situation. Normal. <laughs> normal all fouled up. Mm-hmm. Only they don't use the word. Foul. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> but but that word, <laughs> you know, mentioned in the chapter, you know, I was just writing that word a couple of days ago <laughs> in a document. So, yeah. Um, and they were talking about. Uh, When they were talking about the the uh, the the veterans from 1941 to 1945, yeah, and and how things kind of got really mixed mixed up and messed around. Yeah, Christy, we're down to less than five minutes, and okay. Deanna's got her hand up. All right, Deanna. I just wanted to say that that um, yes, that's why I think but that we as a population because we're a small population of the disabled um it's it's much harder for us to be out there and to make a difference but that's what we have had to do to make it better um and i think the the biggest influx of, of blindness among the world war ii veterans is now um there is a large population of traumatic brain injury patients. Yes, yes. And we're having to deal a lot more with mental health because that's the kind of damage that the most recent wars have have left us with. Yes. Well, we have, thank you very much, Tiana. We have less than probably a minute left. So, um, I want to ask you guys to read chapter 18, which is called The Three-Wheeled Cart, and chapter 19, Mobility, Key to Independence. So well, that's going to be a doozy. All of you guys, <laughs> chapter 18 and 19, and let's get some more people on this call next week. Thank you for coming. The end of January 11th call and appreciate all of you. Thank you, Larry, for streaming and Brad for hosting.